Welcome to the Jesse Garcia Show, your half-hour home for politics, culture, and art, where we bring you a new story about your world in every episode. Today's guest is the Honorable Judge Rosie Speedland Gonzalez. The South Texas native presides over Bear County Court Number 13, where she deals with some of the toughest family court cases. Her toughest battle lately has been occupying space as an openly LGBTQ Latina judge. We'll talk about how she navigates those hurdles and what advice she has for those who want to follow in her footsteps. Thank you for following The Jesse Garcia Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. For more information about the podcast, visit jessegarciashow.com. According to a report by the American Constitution Society for Law and Policy, Women have entered law schools and the legal profession in large numbers in the last 40 years, but somehow are underrepresented in the judiciary. Although women make up half of the population in the United States, they only account for one-third of state judges. At the federal level, we find similar numbers. Only one-third of active judges are women who serve as U.S. Court of Appeals judges, U.S. District Court judges, U.S. Magistrate judges, and U.S. Bankruptcy Court judges, according to the U.S. Courts. People of color make up 40% of the U.S., but less than 20% of the judges. Representation matters, and today's guest knows all that too well. The Honorable Judge Rosie Speedlid Gonzalez has spent years making sure her community is present and accounted for. She has mentored many to take on more leadership roles and to seek professional development programs in order to further their careers. From the bench, Judge Gonzalez has used her life experiences in social services and education to help those who come before her court break the cycles of poverty and violence. But most importantly, Judge Gonzalez yields her gavel as an out and proud gay person who's battled professional bigots that try to censor her at work. Judge Gonzalez, the first openly gay judge elected in Bear County, which encompasses San Antonio, Texas, decided to post a rainbow pride flag at the bench for formal proceedings in her courtroom. She was ordered to remove that flag and other items with the rainbow design after someone filed a complaint in 2019. They allege the displays were in violation of the Texas Code of Judicial Conduct. The Texas Commission on Judicial Conduct ruled that the display perceived partiality on behalf of the LGBTQ community. Judge Gonzalez appealed to the Texas Supreme Court last year, and this February, a three-judge special court of review ruled that Judge Gonzalez did not violate judicial conduct. All warnings against her were dismissed. Now, let's hear from the woman who stood her ground against Texas bigots and won. She spoke to the Jesse Garcia show prior to the Texas Supreme Court ruling. Now, all rise for Judge Rosie Speedland Gonzalez. I want to welcome to the show an amazing out and proud public servant who broke glass ceilings and charted new territory as a county court judge in Barrow County, Texas, the Honorable Rosie Speedland Gonzalez. Welcome to the show, Judge. Thank you for having me, Jesse. It's un placer, and I'm honored to be here with you tonight. It's an honor for me. Like we were talking earlier, you not only come from like 
my hometown of Brownsville, Texas, in La Frontera, but you also are a Homer Hanna High School graduate. I sure am, and I'm yeah, a proud so, one too. Yeah, so it's just it just warms my heart to know that someone in this position started out from the same uh, public school network that I came from. So thank you so much for coming on the show. And I, I wanted to bring you on the show because you have such an interesting story, and I want folks to understand uh, how you got there, and hopefully you can inspire some folks. Tell us your journey about growing up in South Texas, and what made you get into the legal profession? Well, you know, I, I, I was born in, in Brownsville, Texas in 1965 at Mercy Hospital to Raul Gonzalez Rios and Alicia Gonzalez. And my dad was a Mexican national and he was uh, an aduanal, a Mexican federal. He worked in customs and he had a second grade education, but by the time he was done with, with his career, he worked for the Mexican government for over 40 years. And my mom was originally from a place called El Ranchito, which is a very small agricultural community that it's actually El Calavoz that's located between El Ranchito and La Paloma on military highway along the banks of the Rio Grande River. And La Paloma and El Ranchito sit between San Benito and Brownsville, Texas and South Texas. And uh, she graduated from San Benito High School in 1950, grew up in the shadow of World War II. Uh, my dad was Mexicano, as they say, hasta las meras cachas. He refused to speak <laughs> English to us. And my mom was uh, a product of the World War II patriotism movement. And she was very much a proud American. And she refused to, you know, she, she refused to speak Spanish to us on a regular basis. Uh, so my brother, I only have one sibling, Herman, and I grew up in, for lack of better words, a very bipolar home. We had my dad who only <laughs> wanted to speak Spanish to us and my mom who only wanted to speak English to us and lower education, higher education, but they chased the American dream and they provided for us very well. My mother, uh, brought us up by a lot of example she went back and got her college degree in her 40s not only did wow. she get her bachelor's she got her master's in five years and graduated summa cum laude and when people would ask her you know what are you doing You're, you have young kids at home why are you going to night school you work all day and she said i can't tell my 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 kids that education is the most important thing for them unless i show it to them i have tengo que ser el ejemplo i have to be the example and uh, she was, she was, both our parents were great examples of how hard work and education, and as my mom would say, con Dios y ganas, todo se puede. And just focusing on, on achieving that American dream. And, you know, I, I, I love where I grew up. As you know, we had t Mexico 10 minutes in one direction and the beach 20 minutes in the other Boca direction. Beach, South Padre Island. Yes. You and so- Better, absolutely absolutely so uh i believe i had one of the best upbringings that anybody could have i had great parents and when you know i didn't have that cards stacked up against me other than immutable characteristics the fact that i was a woman the fact that i was from south texas the fact that i was gay and so th there are certain things that i could not change about myself but the things that i could control i sure did and that was how much i put into my education how much i developed my profession you know being a judge is my third profession and so i started out 
graduating from college, going into graduate school and dropping out of graduate school from St. Mary's University and uh, landed up 11 years of social work or, or social work fields before social I decided. Work? Yes. And, and I held, um, I remember right out of college, right after I, I dropped out of uh, graduate school, I ended up working at the Southwest Neuropsychiatric Institute for Kids. And it was a lockdown psychiatric hospital for children anywhere from ages two all the way to 18. And I was there for two to three years. And then I left there and I was a community emergency assistance program director for Catholic Charities. And then from Catholic Charities, I went to the uh, communities and schools where I was a gang counseling facilitator at Harlandale Independent School District here in San Antonio. And from and the there- were uh, such a problem in the 90s in San Antonio. Oh, absolutely. They were being uh, pulled out of the regular classroom settings and put into portables because they were so disruptive. And so I was, I was like a resource staff for the teacher to help change those behaviors by those self-proclaimed gang members. And then I had to train them with job skills and place them in jobs for the summer and supervise them. And I left there and became the youngest program director at the Mexican American Unity Council here in San Antonio, where I ran a, a multi-million dollar program uh, for at-risk youth, 12 to 15, that um, had experimented with drugs at some level. And uh, we, we taught them resiliency skills based on a, a database, science-based study that was done in Hawaii over a 20-year period by a couple known as Wolin and Wolin. And all that uh, research that we did catapulted me to Travis County where I was hired by the, the uh, Travis County Juvenile Department. And I was an ISP officer there, gang, gang officer. Uh, ISP means intensive supervision probation. And uh, I helped develop their, um, their uh, diversion programs for adolescents. And I had three specialized caseloads. I had sex offenders, Spanish speaking offenders and felony offenders. And I was there for two to three years before my dad fell ill. And my mom asked me to return back to Brownsville to help her because she was still working as a counselor at Garden Park Elementary School. And I went down there for about a year and a half. And I ended up going back to Hannah High School where I was uh, what they called back then a long-term substitute teacher for teachers that for some reason or another could not come back for like a semester. It was a medical issue or something else. And I ended up teaching uh, special ed and sciences. And while I was down there, my mom's like, hey, have you ever reconsidered this, this dream we had when you were younger that you'd be a lawyer and we need more money to help take care of your dad. <laughs> okay, mom, I'll, I'll, I'll apply to law school. And I applied at my alma mater. It was the closest law school uh, to Brownsville. And I got in. I didn't put, get put on a wait list or anything. I got in and at 33, I returned to St. Mary's and uh, began my journey into, into the legal profession. A rattler, my... a rattler. I also went to St. Mary's, not the law school, but this, the university for grad school. And I just want to, I just love how we've hit the same locations to yes. get um, ahead in life. And, you know, and, and St. Mary's has a commitment to being the gateway to higher education for Latinos in South Texas. So, you know, that's maybe the reason we both ended up there and uh, got my law degree. And that that sent me uh, in an air. I was in practice for 16, almost 17 years, representing almost the same populations that I had worked in helping as as a person that worked in the social work fields and you know i was helping juveniles so you already had that experience you got the you know upfront 
and personal with all these type of clients yes that we're facing you already knew the terms i mean you were well prepared for this position yes and one of the things that i forgot to mention i was an investigator child abuse investigator for three years as well oh my god and so i you know all those populations ended up being people that i represented as an attorney and by the time i was elected to the bench i was the only board certified attorney uh known as a child welfare law specialist in bear county in south texas uh and now there's there's uh many more because they started giving that um that test at the state level to get board certified and that i was nationally board certified and then texas decided that they were going to do a state board board certification so now we have a, a bigger number of folks doing that type of work representing families and children in this in the child protective services system and that was all before i came onto the bench and now I've, I've been reelected. I'm in my second term as judge of Bear County Court at Law Number 13. And that is one of two misdemeanor level courts in Bear County that handle exclusively domestic and family violence criminal cases. And uh, the range of punishment is up to one year at the Bear County Jail. Uh, the court can find them up to, but no more than $4,000. And we're different in the sense that we can also take a person's constitutional Second Amendment right to ever have firearms and guns and ammunition. Uh, so uh, it's it's the highest of misdemeanors, as I tell defendants that appear before me in the court. And it's, it, you know, my journey from, from, from being at, at Hannah High School to being where I am now has been, in my view, you know, a wonderful, beautiful journey of meeting people, helping my hand and having opportunities to change lives in, in ways I never even dreamed of. It's impressive because when you hear of being the first out judge in Bear County, a lot of people thinking, well, it's sort of like the Democrats, they want to check off boxes. So they got an out person that was a, happened to be a lawyer to get into this office. But no, 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 no. You came with all these skills that have prepared you. It's almost like, that was your, that was your life life's journey. So 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 <laughs> as a, as an attorney, um, well, let me tell you a story. When I was about twenty eight, between twenty six and twenty eight, I remember I was I was in Austin, Texas, and when I was in Travis County, and in Austin, I was during the day I worked as a probation officer. At night, during the week, I went and, and, and moonlighted at a, at a facility for young girls called the Settlement Home. I was overnight staff. On the weekends, I worked at another facility for women and children called the Austin Family House. During basketball season, I called uh, girls high school basketball as an efficient official uh, for UIL. And then I also worked for nonprofits that needed unarmed uh, security. And so five jobs. At, at one time, from time to time, and I remember saying to myself that year that I worked so hard, only breaking like thirty-seven, thirty-eight thousand a year, and I'm like, "Is this as good as it gets? You know, yeah. is, is this, this going to be my struggle the rest of my life?" And about three quarters of the way through my legal career, before I got elected judge, I came to this epiphany that God had prepared me. I believed to be the lawyer that I was by putting me through that journey of social work because I was a very unique lawyer with a very unique uh, skill set that I brought exactly. to my practice. Exactly. And now as a judge, I still have that very unique journey and skill set that I bring to the bench. And so, you know, I believe things happen for a reason. And sometimes you just got to go with the flow and not question what's before you just do the best you got with what's before you on your plate. 
Exactly. Now, what was harder growing up in South Texas and going into these fields, the machismo or homophobia? You know, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to make a statement right now that I take issue with the term machismo and I'm going to tell you why. Yeah. If you go into the interior of Mexico, it is not a negative thing to be a macho or a macha. That word and its origin and root means to be of strong character. But once that word got jettisoned north of the border, it took on a negative connotation. And so the first time that I experienced the negative connotation was was in San Antonio. You know, for me, it is macha. You know, my dad would tell me, it is fuerte, it is the character fuerte. And so, um, I think there's some traditional expectations, not only from men, but from women as well, uh, that I've had to face, but my way of facing them is, you know, you yeah. don't have to accept, accept who I am. And if you don't like it, I don't think that's my problem. That's your problem. Because I'm going to serve you and I'm going to be your servant, regardless of who you are. Uh, I'm going to treat you the same way. It's you that's choosing to treat me differently. Um, you know, homophobia, you know, it started internally. I think for all of us that are LGBT, we struggle, right? Because yes, we, we come into the world always wanting to first um, make sure that our parents are happy with us, that our siblings are happy with us, that our family is, we don't want to shame our families. We don't want them upset with us. So we live our lives for them and we live our lives for our friends and we're never truly authentic about who we are until we come out. And so that homophobia is, has part of, you know, first started being fearful of, oh my God, my own feelings, what's wrong with me, right? As a teenager. Yeah, and then that kind of comes and goes and comes and goes. And by the time I was 26, I was ready to come out to my family. And I'll tell you, I told my mom when I was 26 at the, at the dining room table at our house, and she was, it was Sunday and she was reading the Brownsville Herald and having her cafecito with some barbacoa. I said, mom, I got something to tell you. And she's reading the paper, reading the paper. And I spit it out, mom, I'm gay. And if you can imagine, she folded the paper over and all you could see were her eyes. And mm -hmm. she said, tell me something I don't already know. And then ah. she folded the paper <laughs> back up and kind of dismissed me. Like, yeah. you're not telling me anything new. What do you want me to do with that? You know? Yeah. So it was kind of anticlimactic. And um, once I got past that, um, you know, my friends have always been, very, even my friends from Brownsville, very accepting. Um, the people around me have been very, very embracing and loving to me. Um, again, those that have been negative toward me are people that I don't know. Yeah. And so I've always had a sense to kind of gauge what's around me. And if I feel unsafe, I leave. I'm not there to, to force you to accept me. I'm not here to force anybody to accept me. And, but I am going to accept myself and live my authentic self because that is the key to my own happiness. And you mentioned something about, you know, the Democrats just want to check something off. Let me tell you a story. I ran for judge the first time in 2010, and it was my own party that would say to me, you're never going to win running as an out candidate. And I lost in 2010 in a Republican sweep. Then I ran again in 2014. 
And the, you know, you're never going to win. If you want to win, you, you quit telling people you're gay. My own party, my own, the own people, yeah. my own people. And we lost, all of us lost again in the Republican sweep. Then along came 2018. I was the only out candidate running. And I won by 60, 70,000 votes, along with other, other uh, Democrat candidates during a gubernatorial cycle. We had a little bit of a Beto effect. And that accounted for about a 35,000 vote bump. Um, we still would have won just by not so much. And the, the, beautiful, the, the beauty of all this, the most beautiful outcome is that you fast forward from 2018 to the primaries, okay, in 2022 of March, and we had all of a sudden eight out candidates on the ballot countywide. And I'm now, here. as I sit here, I can tell you that there are four out lesbians on the bench here in Bear County, not just me anymore. I'm not alone. I'm not, but all it took was four years to make that change and to have a whole different perspective about what our elected officials can look like. Your elections have been decisive. Um, looking at your record, you beat your opponents like 56, 57% of the vote in the primaries and the general election. What's your secret? One of the things that I, you know, First of all, I always tell people it's it's not it, if they're thinking about running for public office, one of the biggest mistakes that young candidates or inexperienced candidates make is they just jump into it. They yeah. make they they don't prepare themselves. They don't go to campaign school or candidate school. They don't understand the process of well, what's the number you need to reach to 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 to, to win. They don't know, understand the demographic breakdowns of the individual precincts of their county, and so my advice to them is prepare study, go to a campaign school, go to two. I went to three. I used to consult with candidates on what to do to get the, their vote out and what kind of messaging to do. And so I, that, I brought all of that to my own candidacy. And um, in 2010, I did some fundraising. I hated fundraising because for me personally, I don't believe that from the judicial branch, we should be accepting any money from anyone. From my personal view, that taints the robe. And I did fundraise in, in 2010. I hated it. I, I, was, I was told I had to fundraise in 2014. I hated it. I didn't. I refused to take any contributions in 2018 when I won. And I've refused to take any contributions since. And I believe from what I hear from the constituents, they believe I'm a candidate with integrity because I don't take any money and I am running for judge. And that's one of the keys to my success. Uh, the other key is that I have a partner, a wife, uh, Dr. Stacy Speedling Gonzalez, who grew up in a, in a political family. Her mom was uh, Justice Phyllis Speedland Weatherman. And Phyllis, my mother-in-law, uh, sat as a district court judge and that and then she retired uh when she was a justice on the fourth court of appeals and so stacy grew up going to political events so she, i had a, a spouse that ran right along me and understood the dynamics of what i needed to do and what i needed to say and how i needed to say it and how i needed to reach out to my constituents to get the vote out because she had been raised in, in that climate um and 
I'm I'm not one to nomás, as they say, pelar el diente and <laughs> say things just to get your vote. And people know that. And I'm very forthright. I'm, uh, I take a lot of pride in the fact that I try to be as honest as I can with people. No me, que, no me quedan pelos en la lengua, as they say in South Texas. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I'm told I'm, I'm too... Um, too rough to, with people or I hurt their feelings. And so my response to them has always been, I'd rather hurt their feelings now than have to explain to them later why I lied to them. And again, that's not my issue. That's their issue. If they can't handle the truth, then I don't know what to tell them. But I will always, always give you my, my most honest opinion. And I will always try to help if I can, anyone that comes to me and seeks guidance or seeks assistance in whatever path they're, they're walking. Yeah, you're, you have made it known that you're gonna be who you are in your most, most authentic self. Uh, you were once um, in the center of controversy because you decided to put a pride flag in your courtroom alongside the Texas flag, the American flag, and people got so upset and it became a thing. What did you walk away from that experience? Because you made some headlines of people that were trying to censure you and 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 sort of like shame you for doing that. And, you know, I think uh, anyone that's, that's a member of the LGBT community can say, shaming has been a tool used to control us. Yes. And so I refused to be shamed about it. And uh, there was a conversation with 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 a, a fellow judge at the time who who said to me, hey, so and so wants you to take the flag down. And he finds it repugnant was the word used. Yes. And I said, Judge so and so I'm not taking it down until the Commission on Judicial Conduct forces me to take it down. Well, that ended up coming to pass. They sent me a letter. If you don't take it down, we're going to fine you. And we could ask that you be removed from the bench. So um, I took it down. And, and actually, I didn't take it completely down because this, I have my door that you can see. You can't see it on the podcast, but it sits right outside my chamber's door. And for anybody who comes to see me, I can have it there. They just wanted yeah. it out from behind the bench. And um, once I was that grew it wasn't just about the flag uh the the commission on judicial conduct has the power to self-investigate and so they started going through my posts and talking to people they found out i had a robe on with a sarape strip across a very uh half an inch sarape strip that went across my chest not rainbow colors just had a lot of colors in it had a lot of they, colors, but that's our culture but they said I could not wear the, that that robe because of this because of the quote unquote rainbow colors on it. I had a pen that was colorful, didn't have the 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 the, the pride flag colors in the same order. It even had different colors in it. But they saw a photograph of it and they said you can't use that pen on, on the bench. My mouse pad was a mouse pad that was a pride flag. They said put your your mouse pad somewhere else. Don't have it on the bench. Um, and so there were all these things that I couldn't do anymore. And after consulting with my attorney, Deanna Whitley, uh, we felt that they had overreached in their directive to me. So we appealed their decision. And we went uh, before three appellate justices at the Texas Supreme Court last June, June of 2022, and, and pled our case. And 
they had 90 days to give us an opinion. That's July, August, September, no opinion. And my attorney said, what do you think's going on? I said, well, they probably don't want to tilt the scales in either my favor or my opponent's favor. Let's see what's going on right after the election in November. So November comes and goes. And at the beginning of December, my attorney says, what do you think we should do? We still don't have an opinion. I said, let me research this. That's when we found out that their opinion should have been rendered 90 days after our hearing back in June. So I should have had an opinion in September. So she, she, she sent a letter and to uh, the powers that be asking where the opinion was and did not get a response. So we filed a motion. And so the motion was filed in, in earlier this month. And so we're waiting to see. We're still we're still in the midst of the controversy. So yeah. we're waiting to hear what the opinion of these three justices will be as to whether I can go back to putting the flag behind me or can I wear that that robe? Can I use my pen? Oh, there was also a pair of glass frames that I could not use. Oh, my God. They got they really petty. They got really petty. That's that's a good word to use. But yeah. so we're waiting to hear if they overreach. Do I get the flag back in the courtroom? We haven't heard. And in my opinion, I talked to my attorney about it. I said, uh, you know, that's that that. You know, when you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing as a judge, if, if I were a judge that didn't render an opinion in 90 days, I could be grieved for that. Yes. And so I said, you know, Didi, you know, Deanna, you know, why, why aren't we grieving them now? And she goes, well, let's, let's you know, let's take her time. So I, I have an attorney and I'm going to follow her, her opinions and recommendations. And we'll, we'll see as soon as I find out something, Jesse, you'll be one of the first people I call to let, to inform you what the result is. I would love to know uh, your work because of what, you know, you've shared your history, your work deals with a lot of family issues. Um, what advice do you have for people that may be listening to this podcast that either themselves or they know people that are in vulnerable situations such as abuse or neglect or poverty? What's the first initial steps that they should take to help themselves? First, forgive yourself. It is not a crime or a sin to love someone that has chosen to hurt you or abuse you. That's not your issue. That's their issue. Second, Seek safety. How do you do that? You make a plan. Okay. You make a plan. You, you, you find someone or, or, or people that are your confidants that will provide you a safe haven when you're ready to leave that relationship that will help you find a way to save your own money, to have a set of clothes there, uh, to, and make sure that they don't disclose to anybody where you're at. And then uh, it may take some some mental health therapy. It may just take some a strong network of, of friends to support you, but to follow through with either filing charges or filing for divorce, but making that clean break for that from that person. Now, the the science and the data teaches us that individuals caught in those dynamics of abuse and neglect on behalf of spouses or their families will attempt to leave about seven times seven times before two things happen or one of two things happens one they succeed they leave and they never go back or the other thing that happens is the tragedy that they end up dead 
Oh and God. so it's very, very, you know, touch and go. It's very sensitive. Uh, we have to be very careful uh, when we're leaving those situations. And as people who support individuals that are trying to leave those situations, we have to be very patient with them. Oftentimes we get caught in, caught in this dynamic with friends. They come for consejos and then they go and do something else. And we say, I'm done with them. Why do you come and ask me advice if you're not going to follow it? But we have to be very patient and sensitive with this particular population of victims because they're struggling internally. Yes. They've been they've been emotionally abused. They've been mentally abused. They've been physically abused. They've been threatened with death. And it's the most horrible situation to be in. And so as, as a community, as a family, as a friend, we have to understand those dynamics and understand that this is the biggest struggle that this person will ever have to deal with. And it's the biggest battle of their lives. And they have to have us in their arsenal and on their side through thick and thin in order for them to successfully leave that relationship and then start a new life free of violence, free of intimidation, free of fear. And it's so hard because when you, like you had mentioned, they go to their prima, to their friend, asking for advice on this violent situation that they're in. Our community rarely goes to mental, mental health professionals. They don't seek therapy because they think it's taboo. It's something that's maybe too uh, You know, you'll hear, I que vergüenza, right? Exactly. I mean, it's, it's the shame and because... The Nobody wants to admit they, they got themselves in the situation, you know, and the friends, they rather go to the friends because, you know, we're so used to just relying on our family members. But I tell those people that are recipients of all this information, I'm like, try to steer them to a mental health professional, because one, they're going to provide them better choices from a, someone that's not like, uh, it's a third party. And then plus that isn't placed on you because what if you give them bad information and then you feel bad you know because you're not guiding them to the right place that they need to be so yeah it's just sort of like a community needs to become more accepting of mental health professionals being going to them having access to them we need to support institutions that are community centers to include more mental health professionals to help us um our community solve their problems when they're in need so thank you for giving us this advice. Um, it's just really refreshing for coming from an actual judge that has to see this on a daily basis on all these people that come before her court and, and, and you have to decide some very, 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 very hard cases. You know, and, and our, our, our culture and our community is a very wounded community. We're, we're very traumatized and everyone has trauma. And so, we don't want to pull families apart. That's not that's not something that that is number one on the list for this these types of courts. Uh, what we found in this court is that ninety percent of the defendants that come through this court uh, were arrested under the influence of alcohol, cocaine, meth. Uh, very low incidence of opiate use or marijuana use. But when you talk to that ninety percent universe, almost one hundred percent of them will tell you that they themselves are adult survivors of childhood trauma, or and or abuse that they never, never were able to uh, address. And so, and, and so uh, we created a program in, in County Court 13 called Reflejo Court. And that Reflejo Court offers first-time offenders of family violence who want the help, 
because the science also shows that if a person doesn't want to change, they're not going to change. So they have to want to change. And we offer them trauma healing. We offer them sobriety. We offer them employment and housing. And they have one to two years to finish the program. And if they finish the program successfully, then their case is not only dismissed, it is also expunged. And that means their record is clear of even any arrest. And that means that they are not limited. They actually get a second chance at life because those folks that, that come into the criminal justice system and don't do this program and enter into some, some, some uh, probation deal, a plea deal, or are found guilty of the offense, guess what? The law says they cannot ever be primary conservators of their children. They're disqualified from financial aid. It affects their ability to lease or rent housing. It affects their ability to enter certain professions. And it also uh, affects their right to have a firearm, a gun, or ammunition to protect themselves. So we create this sub subculture of, of people that are uneducated, they're unemployed, they're angry, and they're vulnerable. And so we don't want to continue to have a hand in creating that population, if at all possible. We give individuals an opportunity to get that second chance at life. Uh, the program is just a couple of years old. We're going to have our fourth graduation this coming Friday. Um, uh, and so we, we're the only specialty court in Bear County that launched during COVID on Zoom. And so that affected our numbers. We had very low numbers. We've had 10 people graduate, over three graduations. Of those 10 people, none have reoffended. We have six people graduating on we have six people graduating on, on Friday, and we already have seven people slated to graduate in July. So Thank you for that. Congratulations. We're very excited to see this program grow now that these COVID uh, protocols are, are, are dropping and, and the courthouses are opening up fully to the public again. Thank you for breaking the cycle on that. One fun question that I want to ask. Yes, sir. As a judge, what is your biggest pet peeve about people who go before your court? Like, what should they do when, I mean, what should they remember when they're in front of, when they're in court, period? Because you've probably seen so many craziness uh, before you. What are some of your pet peeves? I think um, that that folks are still kind of coming out of that COVID cloud. I call it the cloud because <laughs> they come in acting like they don't know they're in court. They come in eating or smoking. Um and I have to remind them, and, and some of our court is done on Zoom, and those are the most challenging ones because I remind them, this may be an online court, a virtual court, but you're still in court. Yeah. So don't come in here eating or mascando chicle or drink. <laughs> we had a guy drinking a tall boy. We caught him drinking beer oh, on, yeah. on the screen. <laughs> yeah. We have people that come in and they're they're wearing uh you know uh, uh pajamas. Pajamas. Uh, oh or my they're, God. they're in they're in beds, you know kicking back, sleeping. So, <laughs> you know, they they have, I think I'm going to assume they have this perception that because it's a quote unquote misdemeanor, it's no big deal. But this misdemeanor can profoundly affect the quality of your life if it's not handled correctly for you. If you're accused, I mean, one of my jobs is to protect your due process rights. If you're accused and you're not happy with, with your attorney, get a new lawyer. You have the right to hire a lawyer. Or let the court know, hey, judge, I know I have a court-appointed attorney, but 
can I, can I get, can I apply for a new attorney? Absolutely. You can apply for a new attorney. Um, and we give you a second chance at an attorney, but like with everything else, if now you're in a third or fourth request, then I have to question, is it the attorneys or is it you, you know? And so, um, there's, there's a lot of ways to improve the quality of your appearance in this court. And when I say appearance, that means showing up, but it also means the way that you look and the way that you talk uh, to your attorneys and to the court. And I'm hoping that some of those behaviors uh, really go down and we see less of them. And uh, in this court, we still use Zoom because Zoom has proven to increase the participation levels of, of uh, parties, defendants, and attorneys. And we are uh, in person when we do jury selection and we do trials. Uh, Last week was the first week we did not broadcast on YouTube because the courtrooms are open, but we do use Zoom as a tool. um, I, I will conduct court from my chambers and if I need to I just run down this little hallway and I'm in person in my courtroom should I need to conduct a hearing in person Um, but for the most part we use zoom to to increase the participation uh, not have to issue out as many warrants for uh, failing to appear in court and um, I think it's working well that hybrid way of, of going at it is working well but I think you know the the peeves take this seriously as it is because it could result if you don't take it seriously and you being incarcerated for a longer period of time than you ever imagined you would want to be incarcerated just hearing your story and the way you um conduct your court and the way you want to help people who are at their worst when they appear in front of you probably has a lot of people thinking in their heads I want to do that I want to help people through the by being a a judge on the bench. What advice do you have for people that want to follow in your footsteps? First of all, um, you know, and I talk to a lot of young people uh, that say that. And I say to them, you know, your education, we're going full circle talking about education as we, as we close up here, your education is the most important thing. And if you don't think it is, let me tell you, you get placed in junior high classes based on, on your grades in elementary school. And when you get to high school, you get placed in classes based on how you well you did in junior high. And then the next step, you get admitted to college is based on how well you did in high school. So you really have to put a lot of effort in making sure you perform well educationally. And for college, you know, you will you will then have to take an LSAT, a law school admission test to see what law schools will accept you based on that score and based on your undergraduate. GPA. So if you're looking to come down the same path that I'm coming down, um, make sure you protect your grade point average. And if you want to be the person that law schools seek as as opposed to you begging law schools to take you, you need to have a 3.6, 3.8 GPA, if not higher. If you have that GPA, then your next step is prepare to take the LSAT. The biggest mistake people in our in our community as raza make is that oh god will take care of me i'm gonna go see abuelita tomorrow for a prayer (laughs) and i'm gonna light a vela and sit and take the test they do not prepare to take the exam and i'm gonna tell you you need to prepare like you do for, for any exam you study you go and you take a prep course if you cannot afford a prep course go to half price books go to uh barnes and noble Go to book people and go to the test uh, 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 book section 
and buy out every version of an LSAT prep book. And you start diving into that book on your own. It's going to take your, your discipline to spend and, and you build up your stamina. Start with 15 minutes doing tests in the book and, and, and grading it. And you build up to a half hour and you build up to an hour until you can sit there every Saturday between that, the time you started and the time you take your tests for eight hours in front of those books, diving into those books and doing questions and repeating the questions and repeating the questions. That is the more questions you do before you take the LSAT, the higher your score will be. It's, it's, it's a known fact. Once you have your GPA and LSAT, you need to apply to every law school that you think might take you because there is research that says that people of color will be admi are admitted at a lower rate than than people than than Caucasians and white people. So, in order to increase your chances at getting admitted into law school, you have to increase the number of law schools you apply to. Then, once you get into law school. Your focus is to stay in law school. So your first year of law school, you really need to buckle down. And all you need to do is study, 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 study your first year so you can stay in law school. Once you, you make really it have a job, right? No, do not work and go to law school. Once you're done with your first year of law school, now you can look at going to do a clerkship or working for a lawyer or getting a job somewhere in the legal profession to finish out your two years of law school. And then you graduate from law school. You're not done. Now you got to get your law license, which means you have to pass the bar in, this, in the state wherever you're going. And again, you have to prepare to take the bar because the content on the bar is very different than the content you mastered in law school. So. Take those bar exam prep classes. Don't go in there cold and just take the bar exam. You know, the, the Vela and the Abuelita still don't work. You need to prepare. <laughs> and once you, you get that license, now the gates to your profession and your career have opened up. And that's what you need to do. Because once you get to that point, you need to be an, an attorney in good standing for at least five years before you can be elected to be a judge. Thank you so much for dropping all this knowledge. There's a lot of people that are going to be thinking about following this career and you just gave them so like the framework. So I appreciate all the, you being that person that can share this information and all the work that you've done to give people second chances to break Thank that you, cycle, to break that cycle, to break that cycle. Well, you know, knowledge as they say, right, the more you know, right, is valuable. Knowledge is only powerful when you share it. And so every chance I get, I mentor, I share my knowledge. What good is it that it stays in my head? It's not any good to anybody else unless I share it. I share it with you, Jesse. I share it with, with students that come to me. I share it with law students. And that's what's going to improve our quality of life and their quality of life. And that's why we're put on this earth to make, to serve our, our neighbors, our brothers and sisters, and help them have as good a life as they can attain out of their own efforts. Thank you so much, Judge Speedman um, Gonzalez, for this wonderful, wonderful, beautiful advice that you've given us today. Thank you for having me, Jesse. And I hope to see you out there at a LULAC event or at a Stonewall event. And I'm sure that's going to happen here in the next year sooner than we think. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Jesse. Have a good night.